Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast for data enthusiasts, data scientists, and upcoming data science leaders to learn the skills required to take your career to the next level. We do this by hearing the stories, lessons learned, and mistakes done by today's top industry leaders out there in the field. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Thank you so much for coming back, tuning in again. Thank you for so much for sharing the podcast, telling your friends about it, and for all the feedback that you've been sending across. We really, really appreciate you both sharing and letting us know how you're enjoying the podcast. So today's episode is a different type of episode, a special episode on the eve of the podcast's one-year anniversary or birthday. I sat down with Anthony Ugoni, who you would have met if you listened to episode 21 of this podcast. He is the Director of Global Matching and Analytics at Seek. He is the chairperson at the Institute of Analytics Professionals of Australia. He is an advisor at Pascal. He's also a board member at the Center for Business Analytics at the University of Melbourne. He's also on the board of the Australian Alliance for Data Leadership. A fascinating man, a wealth of experience. We heard his story in episode 21. And in today's episode, we actually turned the tables. So he is, Anthony is interviewing me in this episode. So obviously a little bit different, but this is my story and I hope you enjoy it. Let me know what you think. Welcome to Data Futurology, everybody. You're probably hearing a different voice than you're used to, actually, because the usual host can't make it for hosting duties, and it would also be kind of weird if he actually hosted and asked the questions today because he is the subject of the podcast. My name is Anthony Ugoni. I work in the data science field here in Australia. I've had the honour of being one of interviewees on this podcast. I thought it was really important that uh, we took the opportunity to interview Felipe, who has as rich a history and experience as anybody who he's interviewed. So, with that, Welcome, Felipe, to Data Futurology. Thanks, Anthony. Much appreciated. It's amazing. <laughs> it's been a long time coming, and I'm, I'm glad you accepted the invitation to be interviewed. Let us start at the beginning. We'll start with the personal stuff. Married with one child, right? That's right. Yeah? That's a nice notch to your career. Probably the most rewarding career you'll have. Tell us your cultural background. The listeners will have heard this uh, exotic accent for a year now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Where are you from? I'm originally from Chile, South America. Yeah. I grew up in the north of Chile, which is the desert. It's the driest desert in the world, and it would rain about once every seven years. Wow. We'd get about a one centimeter of rain. Yeah, we grew up in a small town up in the mountains, which had about 10,000 people. That's a big uh, That's a big change to uh, cosmopolitan Melbourne. I know, right? <laughs> so... um. How old were you? When did you uh, when did you come to the land of Oz? I was nineteen when I came over, right. and so two years ago. That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wish. And I came originally as a backpacker just to see the country. Obviously, loved it. Decided to stay. Yep. And then studied and continued on from there. But totally loved it. And in the uh, last time you and I caught up, you gave me a great story about um, how you supported yourself. <laughs> One of your first jobs. Uh, I think uh, it's important for the listeners to know just uh, how ambitious and uh, what sort of work ethic that you had. So you want to share that story? Yeah. So when I first got to Australia, I didn't speak in English. And the extent of my vocabulary was the jacket is black. The jacket is black. I don't know why I knew that. <laughs> but if there were green pants, 
I was stuffed. <laughs> so when I got here, I thought I can try and put some money together to pay for an English course, or I can try and find a job where I'm forced to speak. Speak English to people and get, get the chance to learn that way. So I did the latter, and I became a door-to-door -door salesman selling Optus home phone and internet, where I would have to knock on about 120 doors per day, six days a week, and uh, trying to convince people to change their phone and internet provider to this company. Commission only, so there was a lot of days of zero payments. <laughs> but the interesting thing was that we got to travel a bit with the with the job. So I was based in Queensland at the time, oh. and yeah, we did obviously Brisbane and Gold Coast, and went up to even to North Queensland. So we went to Cairns and Port Douglas and everywhere in between, like Bundaberg and yeah, heaps of places that we got to see as part of that it's that gig. Fantastic story. So you went from the jacket is black to. <laughs> The best podcast that I think on data science coming out of Australia and um, and in the world. I think it's a great effort. Throw a, uh, another curveball at you just to lighten it up before we get into the data science stuff. What's your favorite order at your favorite restaurant? I generally go for anything with chicken. is high up there for me. Okay. If there's a, a chicken risotto, then yeah. Otherwise, it'd be like a steak sandwich. And I haven't prepped you for this question, and we should. Have you adopted any of the indigenous football teams or are you still what we call a soccer supporter? Yes, no, still a soccer supporter. Yes, okay. I have been to AFL games and uh, I do enjoy it. I enjoy the fast pace of it. It's yeah, really nice. But with soccer, there's that unspoken tension and you see the dynamic of the game shifts so much even when there is no score. That, yeah, I it just... is the beautiful game. All right, well, let's launch into... so. More Felipe Flores details. Let's get into your education first. There's no, there hasn't been a clear pathway for leaders with um, a ton of experience behind them in the data science world. Mm. It's been an emerging field while you and I have been uh, embarking on this. So hit us up with your education first. What did you study? Yeah, so I did computer systems engineering and business as a dual degree up in Queensland. So I, I, studied, I studied my studies in Chile and then transferred them when I decided to stay and chose the dual degree as I thought a, a good mix between the technical and, and trying to get some business in there. Yeah, and then as part of, it was interesting because while I was doing my degree, we had to pick a specialization on the computer system engineering piece. And the specializations to pick from was hardware, software, hardware and software interface, web, or data was one of them. And I was doing a lot of, I guess it would be freelancing work. So for small companies, I would be their IT person and do sort of one or two days a week while I was studying. And, and all that work since I began, which was after the door-to-door the -door sales, but it was always uh, building databases, doing analysis, building reports, and helping make better decisions with like Microsoft Access, for example, right? Cool. At the small business end. Yeah. But then when I was at university, thinking about specializations, I remember speaking to my friends and everyone was saying, data? That's dead. <laughs> As if you're going to study that. So I ended up specializing in hardware. Oh, wow. Even though all of my work was in data. And then it wasn't until I went to do the, uh, my thesis that I was in a mining research center. And I happened to stumble into a project where we were building a essentially a brain monitor or something to detect tiredness in truck drivers in the mines. Important stuff. And that was based off brainwave activity. 
So as part of this research project, there was an electrical engineer, the project manager, and myself, and we built this baseball cap that had the electrodes at the front to measure brainwave activity, one by the ear to be the, the ground zero comparison. And the electrical engineer did all the research design and implementation to build these sensors. And then he would amplify the signal and pass it over to an onboard computer, which was my bit. So I did the, the embedded system, the digital design for the computer, and it had to be, the parts had to be sort of small enough and put far away enough that we had a flexible PCV, uh, like a flexible motherboard essentially. So it could be put into the cap. And then in that is, um, was the first application of machine learning that I ever did, which was going from the brainwave activity to a number between one to five, where Number one is you're just waking up and you're feeling fresh. Number five is you're asleep. And when you go from number three to number four, you're no longer able to drive and the truck had to stop. So as part of that project, we got thousands of hours of brainwave activity. So EEG, thousands of hours of EEG and video footage from about eight sleep experts around the world. And they had labeled this data. And we had to find a way to go from that label data to a number from one to five. Yeah, and I remember on my computer, it was a thousands of lines of code that was a very archaic neural network, as in like one hidden layer, and obviously things that now you do with a couple lines of code. And yeah, yeah. And then on the onboard computer, it ended up being a linear regression. (laughs) That that was about as much power as we could get on the onboard computer that went in the hat. That is fantastic. So. And that data, I'm, I'm getting into analytics kind of geek mode here. So you would have I been love it. capturing a whole bunch of longitudinal data on a brainwave site. So you had to determine the delta out of that data to then determine what is a flag for going three to four? Yes. Yes. Right. Curated data, gold sets, it doesn't change, does it? It's just a different scale. Yeah, interesting. Really interesting. But then after that, when I started working after university, it was all in data but it was more around data warehousing, data migrations, visualizations, reporting. That is uh, the space where I cut my teeth over the next few years before sort of coming back into it. There aren't too many career paths where people start out building neural networks and <laughs> going to BI, right? It's the other way around. So, you know, to that point earlier on, to date, you don't see a lot of common paths into data science. It's um, the fantastic thing, I think, is people are getting into it. Our generation, I sound like an old fart, significantly younger than me. You seem to be surrounded by a whole bunch of leaders who got here out of a passion. Yes. Uh, so it's a nice cohort to be a part of, isn't it? Really nice. That's so well put. Yeah. In terms of your education, yeah. so most people I speak to, and you've now spoken to a number, quite a number of people, there's always one or two kind of influential teachers in their life. Did you have any of those? Yeah, I definitely had influential teachers in, when I was in high school. So for a long time, I always thought of myself as being very bad at maths and had a, like a really negative self-image in the space. But whenever, as a kid, whenever somebody asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up, I would always say engineer. And then obviously years later, looking back, I was like, why, why would I say engineer? And it was literally like the, maybe wanting to be smart, but by proxy. So I was almost saying, if I'm an engineer, people will think I'm smart. <laughs> and then it's like, okay, how do I get my, myself in there? And then sort of it was, as a kid, 
having that and I had a couple of teachers early on that saw in me that there was some I guess a potential for a passion and a love of maths and physics so yeah I had a, a maths teacher that I remember early on so it would have been maybe year nine he would um yeah maybe end of year eight or year nine he pulled me aside and he was saying you know you should you should really try try on this because you're not and you can do it and essentially highlighted that it was about the effort that I was putting in that was leading to my results not the fact that I was sort of Yeah, and having an unrealistic image of, you know, that almost like if you're talented, things happen easy. So he was somebody that started to break that for me to say it's about the effort and then things get easier. So then that put me down the path of starting to love maths and physics and ended up going to like the math Olympiads and physics Olympiads and things. And yeah, which was nice. And I remember like to... I remember in, on holiday period, it was either in year nine or year 10. And I remember sitting with like a, I think year nine, a math textbook and then year 10 physics textbook and just going through it on the holidays, like end to end and like, all right, I'm going to work my way through this. And I felt like I was covering the foundations of the things that I hadn't learned before mm-hmm. that now were hindering me from getting to the higher le- levels of proper understanding of obviously high levels in terms of high school maths compared to any foundation before and I really felt that and it's something that I kind of still carry with me now that when I'm trying to understand something I always go back to the beginning and I want to go through everything and go see the whole way through to build that foundation and build all the links in the chain of the understanding and try to make sure that I'm not having any broken links that then might catch you out later on. That's an important message, particularly for um, people jumping into the career. Everybody seems to want to go straight to convolutional neural net, and they don't actually understand that there's some experimental design that gives you the right data to actually answer the question that the business wants you to answer. I'm really big on that, and I'm sure you are too. Understanding yes. the fundamentals before you actually get into the big area of technology. Yes. And that uh, there's so much that you can do with those fundamentals and business setting. There's so much value to be created with those. And usually the, the turnaround on those is a lot quicker. So then you get the double benefit. So you've been doing it a little while now. And you are well known in the industry as being really good at it. There wasn't a lot of knowledge around, there's certainly a lot of knowledge around stats way back. There's a lot of knowledge around database and data way back. But as the discipline has emerged, what do you wish you would have known what that didn't start out with, uh, that you know today? Great question. What do I wish I would have known? I think that lots of things, actually. And I'm thinking mostly of either mistakes that I made or uh, things that took me a while to learn. So around that, something that I'm very passionate about now is quick delivery of value and with a view that essentially done is better than perfect. And then that usually gives us time to have another bite of the cherry and improve on what was being done. But getting to that first sort of, even if it's a quick and dirty solution, it builds confidence, it gets people feeling successful, and then you are able to get some momentum and power through tougher challenges. That might be if you sort of structure the work strategically, the tougher challenges might be coming down the track and you can start with easier ones that still add value and start to gain the momentum. And um, yeah, for... But I definitely didn't start out that way. And I think a lot of our educational system is around programming us with a paradigm that says you only get to do something once and you will be judged on how accurate and perfect that one-time exam or one-time assignment is. 
And for you to do that, if it's an assignment, you might get a very clear description of what you're aiming to do. And then you take away that brief, that requirements document almost, mm -hmm. take away that brief, you go away, you work extremely hard without any feedback, and then you come out to this one-time judgment day. And I guess like many people going through that, you think that that's how life is and how you should approach your work. And that's the way to be successful. And, and obviously, as we've seen definitely in the last few years, the, the move is away from that and towards, well, at least in the working life, not so much in education. Well, that's a great perspective. I've, I've never thought of that. As, particularly as children at school, we have, we don't have any responsibilities. We don't have time pressures at all the time in the world. So if you want to get that A, it's really on your effort by and large. You just don't get that in the work. You don't get that in the work. I've never thought of it that way. That's a fantastic viewpoint. So that's it. your education. We've spoken about that. Where have you worked? Let's start at the Optus door knocking. The jacket is black. The jacket is black. Yeah. That's right. Oh, that should have been the name of Data Futurology. <laughs> the, oh, that would have been great. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a better name. The marketing cut through the Data Futurology. <laughs> We can make it the tagline. That a futurology. The jacket is black. <laughs> so, you were door knocking, so employment history since then. So door knocking for quite a few months, actually, and had that travel and got to start making some money and things like that. And then I did lots of odd jobs as I was sort of learning the IT side and the business side to a level that I, can, I could start working on that. But um, I was a... An audiovisual technician oh. for a while, yeah, checking projectors in, in meeting rooms and in universities and, and things like that. Uh, obviously, like waiter and things like that. And then I remember at university after I had my first SQL and database subject. I really enjoyed it. I hadn't had stats yet as part of the, the degree. And I thought, oh, I'm going to start getting a job in, in IT and started um, trying to find small businesses that needed like just IT person. <laughs> and we well, found one first, which was on business sales. So they would sell somebody's restaurant, somebody's kebab shop, <laughs> things like that. So I started working there to help out with the website and I was on the phones. And then I noticed that they had this database which everyone kept cursing at because it would crash three or four times a day. And I saw this sort of day in, day out for a few weeks. And then it was a small company, less than 20 people. And I remember one day I had a chat with the owner and I said, you know what, I think I can build you a better database. He was like, don't be ridiculous. Uh, there's a software company down the road. We paid them $40,000 to a team of five to build us this piece of shit. And <laughs> you're a kid, you reckon you're going to build us something? And I was like, I was like, well... How about you give it a go? I said, I'll, I'll work a couple more, like a few more hours over the next eight weeks. We'll see where we get to. If you like it, we can continue. I said, I can continue building it. If you don't, then not really too much skin off your back. Sure, whatever, go for it. So um, I went to the library and I got this book that it was, um, I think, like Microsoft Access in 30 days, one hour a day, or something like that. And I remember sitting at my desk with the book on my lap and I would be reading the book. And flicking through the page and doing what? 
Yeah, and building this database, building the reports, building the forms for people to enter the information, doing the analysis, and essentially tapping people on the shoulder to say, hey, when you go to sell a business or when somebody comes in wanting to sell a business, what information do you ask them for? And they're like, oh, usually this or that. Great. Is that common? Is that all for all industries? And sort of got to know the business that way. Ended up building the, that database. It was just on Microsoft Access, easy. And I ended up working there one or two days a week, so sort of part-time, all of my studies for years. And I remember... Let's just yeah. there for a yeah. So let's be clear. You were practicing customer-led innovation before it was even a thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. See the problem? Tap the people on the shoulder? That's, uh, well, you know, you had the maturity enough to go and ask your consumers, what do you want? How do you do it? That, that, I think that's one of the biggest... That's where analytics teams fail. Right? They build yes. these amazingly complex systems that do incredible computational tasks, but don't actually answer the question that the business wanted. Correct. Uh, and so you were all over that right from the beginning. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, 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 but that's it's a good point because then a lot of the reports and then uh, being able to and it sounds weird to say, enable the business to make data-driven decisions, yeah. obviously, like, you know, 15 people, whatever. It was literally saying, what type of businesses do you think we do better with when we go to sell it? Is it the, like, the cafe or the hairdresser? And then I say, oh, you know, it's the hairdresser. I was like, okay, well, let's, let's look at the data. And then which salesperson is better with the kebab shops versus the fine dining? Or, right. And that was the, the type of analysis. And I remember after I left Brisbane and came down to Melbourne, and years later, there was a flood in Brisbane and that business was hit by the flood and then they lost their server and this is I don't know maybe five or six maybe eight years ago now but years after I left Brisbane anyway so I ended up getting a call from my old boss like that business owner to say hey we lost the server we lost the database with it about 10 years after I built it wow he said we're, we're still using it <laughs> do you happen to have a copy by any chance <laughs> Obviously, being a small database, I ended up, um, I think, like dropboxing him the last yeah, copy right. that I had. Right, right. Anyway. The last time you used a uh, three and a half inch floppy disk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, definitely last time that I used Access as well. So I did that. Also worked in this mining research center with which I ended up doing that thesis yep. through. Before that, I had a few sort of data analysis and programming jobs to do with different research projects. And then ended up doing that that thesis. And then my other job was the audiovisual technician. So I had the three jobs. So that was while you were studying? While I was studying, yep. Yeah. And then went into IBM and did data consulting. So in general, which at the beginning was data migrations. And then it was data warehousing and reporting. Did that for some time. Big clients, so in mostly in the telco space. And then I really wanted to get more into the analytics side. So I went to a small analytics consulting firm which were based out of the uk and but in in australia there were an outfit of about 20 people and Would we know that? so the company uh ended up it was called martin Doe's analytics at the time then changed to lava storm which is the name of their product okay. uh, which was a visual etl tool that did analytics as well most of the work there was in revenue assurance. So essentially analyzing data of how different systems uh, worked in an enterprise to find what were the bugs or errors in the system where it didn't work as expected. And as a result of that, we were, or the company was losing revenue. And in large corporates, there was doozies. Like sometimes we'd spend 
four weeks doing an analysis as in three people for four weeks and we'd literally find that we're overcharging customers something like 16 million dollars a month and then undercharging other customers about 10 million dollars a month yeah. and we like go back and present those findings and then analysis yeah and then i really enjoyed it i felt that i had been doing consulting sort of for a long time in quotes obviously like when you're young time moves at a different pace and your perceptions of it so i felt that you know i was doing sort of that freelancing work when i was at university and then i was worked at ibm and then this small consulting firm and i sort of saw all that as as consulting as you go into a place you're trying to help them you have defined problems and then you leave and i wanted to take on a meaty challenge like a multi-year professional challenge and i thought oh maybe i can do this for myself so a colleague of mine and i decided to leave that small consulting company and set up our own and professionally it was the best and worst thing i've ever done we were essentially two geeks that didn't know anything about business. Somehow we did end up getting an investor early on, who is a guy that had had a consulting business that he started in the IT space. And he grew it for 12 years. He was CEO and he grew it to 200 people and then sold it off and then was doing some business consulting and then went into investing in startups. And then we were, we were one of them. And obviously we thought we hit the jackpot when, when we got him as an, as an investor. But my business partner and I had no idea about business and in the first year, we almost went bankrupt about four times. <laughs> and, in a, in a, and then I think the year after, a couple of times that we were sort of on the brink and not able to sleep. And obviously, lots of mistakes by two kids with no contacts, like nobody knew us in the market. We didn't really know what we were going to be trying to sell as, as our services. We knew that we wanted to be in analytics. We knew that we wanted to be moving towards advanced analytics. But what did that mean? And we'd been using different software. So we thought that we had the answer in terms of what a great analytics software should do and what it should look like and uh, we set out to start building one so we were in a tiny tiny room in a tiny office which i reckon would have been a fifth of this and the listeners were in a uh six-seater meeting room so a fifth of this is well it's less than one seater yeah (laughs) (laughs) and we locked ourselves in for about six months to code up this product and then we the whole time thinking that you know when we emerge and show this to the world we'd have people lining up around the corner to buy this the software from us and obviously you know how the story goes we went to show prospects and people said oh you know like out of this product this tiny bit like, that's good. Like, that's okay. This big piece in the middle, we don't know what that's there for. And this 60% of it, just get rid of that bit. What, what have you guys done? So, obviously, not a being a very customer-driven <laughs> innovation in that case. We, we just thought we knew best. And, obviously, a, a lot of people make the mistake. So, by that point, we were almost, that was one of the times that we were going towards bankruptcy and then we're like all right we need to do something about this so that's when we switched on the the consulting piece and essentially we said all right one of us is going to go and start consulting and then try to grow a team of consultants in that company and then uh tag out and then the other one was going to go and do it in another business and we're sort of the thought was to build that and um, so i went first and we got a one of our for at the beginning we had a few small small clients but in the first year 
we had uh, MLC as one of our clients, which is part of NAV. Yes, we're doing some data analysis there as that they did uh, that they required some help as part of an acquisition that they made of another big company. And in there, we were able to start a team of consultants to help with that analysis piece. And whenever we were able to place another consultant in a client site, we were able to hire a software developer to work on our software product. Yeah. And we went sort of one for one for a while. And in, within that first year, in the first six months that we were doing that, we started with, with MLC. We got Foxtel as a customer, which is in, in media. And then we got a government agency, South Australian Government Justice Department. And getting those was really, like, really, really tough. And it felt that after that, we had a little bit of like proven success in different industries doing the same type of work. It was opening doors a lot easier for us after those three. And then as it happened, so I stayed as leading the consulting piece. So the analytics consulting, and then my business partner was leading the software development. And we went that way and uh, obviously still in the same company. And my roles was the sales, so new client acquisition. And I felt that at the time, I went through this phase that I, I really embedded my self-image and my self-worth to this idea of being an entrepreneur. I was like, oh, you know, I'm an entrepreneur and this and this. Yeah, for that time, uh, it was very important for me to see myself as that, be perceived as that. And anyway, sort of bit of bullshit that I got, that I got stuck in. And in that sort of chasing this entrepreneur life is what sort of forced me to take sales uh, seriously in order to develop the business. And it was really difficult. It was very uncomfortable for me not naturally being a, like an extroverted person. And it was definitely way, way out of my comfort zone. But looking back, it was a very important skill to develop, I think, in order to be able to convince people, influence, be able to see their point of view so you can help them see your point of view and realize that sales is built on trust and built on a human connection and that it's not about trying to do one over somebody or pull the wool over somebody's eyes and right. that if you go down that track, you're not going to get very far at all and that it was about that bonding and human connection and trust. I was doing a little sales. So even though I was doing sales kind of for the wrong reasons, and by that I mean that I was like, oh, I'm being this entrepreneur. And sure. I was doing it for the wrong reasons, but I have found it a really important and valuable skill in my career. And then I was doing the managing the delivery of the programs of work with the different customers. So my view at that point, and at the beginning, it meant that I was the project manager, and then I was sort of part-time to go through multiple customers when we were doing multiple customers at a time, and then I would have project managers at the client sites, and I had set a rule for myself to spend at least half a day a week at each client site, which was half of that time was reviewing the project and the update, and half the time was meeting stakeholders. And obviously... That all sort of fell apart when we got up to 10 clients. And then I also had to be doing sales. And, uh, and we went through some really extremely busy period and, and kind of traumatizing period where I remember I spent, I think, about five or six months where I was billing over 100 hours a week for about six months. And then obviously on top of that, there's a lot of sort of admin work and sales work and, and things like that. And I was literally like sleeping in the office and not necessarily my office, like at a client site doing work there. Somebody gave me this uh, wrist rest that you put just behind your keyboard. Yeah, yeah. That is, it was made of gel. That was my pillow. Yeah, often I would wake up my face on the keyboard and be like, 
oh, okay, I'm awake now. Let's keep, let's keep working. And yeah, just like unhealthy. And what a, it's not an unusual story though for startups, right? It's all in or it's nothing. But a fantastic apprenticeship. You want to be an analytics leader, stakeholder manager, program work, kind of oversight, software development. There's not much more you could have done out of that. Yeah, and coming up with the solutions for the customers was definitely a big learning for me that one of the things that we did in the business was set as a rule that the first three projects that we deliver with a new client had to be seen as part of the sales process. And we got there because there were some feelings in the company that sometimes the work that we were taking on wasn't very exciting. It was boring. It was too easy or it was beneath us. And I was like, well, what do you mean? <laughs> we're doing work in the analytics space. These people have problems in our niche and they're happy for us to help them with it. Why wouldn't we? And they're giving us money. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> we're a business. <laughs> yeah. So definitely had to keep an eye on the culture uh, from that perspective and as having the first three projects as part of the sales process in Mendon. And then the first one, we did exactly what they needed very quickly in a way that builds trust and over-delivering a little bit, but not necessarily infusing it with all of our ideas of how advanced we could make it, but really hitting, targeting the need and delivering exactly what they needed, building the trust. The second one was, you know, a little bit more infusion, but building the trust, hitting the mark on what they needed. And then the third one again. And then by then we'd have a good relationship of, you know, having three sort of having kicked three goals and, and having obviously built up the relationship over that time, then then we're able to start suggesting more around the programs of work, the type of challenges to tackle, or how to put the, the different projects together in order to either get more value or make things easier to build. And how long did you have the business? Five years. It was called? Clear Blue Water. Clear Blue Water? Yeah. So, uh, well, during that time, it was good and bad. So highs and lows. Some of the highs, we, we won some awards. So we were in the top 50 startups in Australia a couple of years in a row. That is from Smart Company magazine. I was runner-up for Victoria's Young Entrepreneur of the Year. Obviously, a lot of people applied. And then the top five had to present at this event. That was about 650 people in the crowd. So I had to do a pitch. And it was like, I don't know, say a five or 10 minute pitch. There's a panel of five that had to pick. And the voting was split. So two people wanted one of the other guys. Two people voted for me. And then the last one was uh, Russell Kogan from Kogan.com. And the guy who is essentially one of my competitors as part of this prize or competition he had a, a business that where he helped people pay their bills and get out of financial hardship and he had gone on the news got he got himself lots of press and was always going on the news saying you know it's getting really tough for australians out there and he was very vocal about the cause that he was supporting people with with his business and even though the business wasn't very big he was able to get a lot of press out of that and when the decision was being made literally Rustin goes he said look i really like the analytics stuff that you guys are doing cool that you're building your own software but he said i wouldn't have been able for him he said i wouldn't have been able to get here to where I am without getting good press and making sure that the public knows what we're about and what's in it for them. So my vote goes to Chris, the, uh, the other guy. Anyway. Just like the Oscars, the best, <laughs> best PR wins. <laughs> but it was, a, it was a good lesson. So towards the end of the company, in the last couple of years, my business partner and I started to diverge in our view for the business. He is a person who is extremely smart and thinks in terms of software, he's way ahead in the future. 
So maybe five years in the future is where his mind naturally gravitates and he likes to work on those problems and design that type of software and try to get there quickly. And that started to cause a rift. I was much more concerned with uh, delivering the customer value today and doing those simple projects that might be a reporting project or a warehousing project that might lead onto the machine learning projects, Mm -hmm. but doing those really well today, even though if it's sort of seen as boring work. And we started diverging like that, and then it eventually got too bad. And as in like, yeah, we was causing a a lot of conflict. And um, I'd been sort of going through that for, I think it was a year and a half where it was was pretty bad. I spoke with my dad one day and he was like, what the hell's wrong? You look like shit. (laughs) And so I was telling him and and obviously he knew that what had happened. He's like, you just need to call it. And even though, yeah, during that time, after getting sort of that first investor in between, we got another investor. And during those five years, there was, I had met a few people that, had expressed interest in investing in Clearwater Water. So I actually sat on that decision for way too long because I saw definitely the, the company as my baby. And even though looking back, I had not done a very good job at being a leader, creating a good culture or a work a good workplace. A lot of things I did pretty poorly then that being able to hit that reset button was actually quite liberating, even though it was emotionally very difficult. So eventually what I did was I went back to some of those people that had expressed interest in investing in the company over the years. And I sort of said, you know, there's a, an opportunity coming up to invest in the company. Are you serious about it? Let's have these conversations. And um, my business partner and I, from the beginning, we both had 40-40, and then we had sort of 24 investors. So when I went to exit, we did it in a way that he got 51%, so he could keep control of the company. And then the rest went to investors where um, the ones that were there grabbed a bit more, and then there was a, another one that came in. And um, yeah. The company's still going? company's still going. Now still it's... talking terms with uh, your yeah, which is good. Yeah, and now it's been rebranded to Smarter, which is like smart data yes. put together. Yeah, and it's doing a lot of optimization work in logistics and a few other fields. You're doing well? Yeah, doing well. So at least they're, um, yeah, they're pretty happy. That's good. So from there? So from there, I went into ANZ. So as head of data science for uh, the institutional division of this large bank and I didn't know any anything about banking before and I had always been a consultant essentially. I didn't understand the amount of work internally that is required within a company in order to get a project to the starting line at the point of where the consultants come in to deliver. That was definitely something that I learned at ANZ. At this bank, I didn't know anything about banking myself. So in large banks, you have all these different divisions that have different types of customers. And what most people think of is the the retail division where an individual, you and I would go into a branch and get an account, a credit card, a home loan, etc. And then from there, there's a wealth division to help people with the superannuation and insurances and things. And then there's a big business spectrum that is so big that it's split out between three divisions where one is a small business, which is businesses about to up in terms of revenue, up to about 10 or $12 million a year. And then there's a commercial division, which is about $10 million a year to about $400 million in terms of revenue. And then the institutional division where I was in, it was from $400 million up. So the heavy hitters, big end of town. And 
big, big players and a lot of international ones as well. And I started, the division didn't have anyone in data science. There was no data science team. It was something new that they wanted to try. So I went in to start the team to, a lot of it was education around what data science was and what it could do for the business. A lot of people said to me that, this is from within the bank, that at that level of clients there's very few number of companies that are of that size and that even though you might have rich data about that company you don't have enough data about having enough companies of that size that you could get into some really interesting analytics so lots of challenges sort of everywhere so in the first six months i hired a couple of consultants and built lots of prototypes first six months i think we did about 40 different prototypes and it was literally throwing shit against the wall to see what stuck for different business heads different parts of the business different executives trying to whet their appetite and for them to see the value it was uh, not very successful and i was getting pretty frustrated and then we did a, a project with group strategy where they wanted to redefine the strategy for the division and they wanted this to be the first data-driven strategy for the bank and this bank is 180 years old and they had never had a data-driven strategy so they went to what was the the beginnings of the data science team for that division we built the strategy which was good over a few weeks with a few data scientists and And unfortunately, at the time, and obviously all this stuff is in the papers now, uh, what happened is that there had been a strong focus on revenue, but not on profit. And we had gone through a period of very quick expansion in, in the bank. And in the institutional game, the margins are very thin because the customers are so big that they have so much market power. And what had happened is that the majority of the customers were unprofitable. And some of them had been for years. So, and that's one of the things that came out of this analysis, along with uh, segmentation and where we're winning with who and where we could get more of them, that type of customers. So going forward, the bank started exiting customers, or this division of the bank started exiting customers from the least profitable moving up, essentially. And for us, we got some recognition internally through that piece of work. So then we got to start a team and we hired uh, 10 interns through the Data Science Melbourne meetup program that they were running at the time, hired 10 10 interns and all full-time, and we started doing analytics, focusing on the customers who were just unprofitable, so almost at the other end. And what we did was we used the data assets within the bank, specifically from the retail division, to build a, a custom analyses for these large companies. So for example, we would go see McDonald's, and we would say, McDonald's in your stores, this is how they're performing. The stores that are best performing are in suburbs of that look like this. The ones that are not performing well are within suburbs that have this other composition. And there's all these suburbs that look like good suburbs for you that you're not in yet. This is where you should move and this is where the people are. And we can see their financial transactions and help them with, with that. So by doing that work, we were able to build a pretty big team over time. So at one point, we were essentially hiring sort of 10 people every six months, building out that capability. And the main aim was around new client acquisition and cross-selling financial products. We were providing analytics as a value add. And that was our first product from the team, which was this freebie analysis that came along with some of the highly profitable financial products that a company could acquire. And then over time, we built additionally a web portal that customers would pay 
us for. So then we started charging directly as well. And that was to access very similar analysis than what they go with the freebie, but at a much more detailed level. And then we also had a bunch of APIs that customers would start to use and we would invoice them at the end of the month. So you became a, uh, you became a profit center. Became a profit center and um, focused on the sales, which is good. All of a sudden, you're running a business again. Exactly, but it was it was really nice having another go, and there was a lot of things that I did much better than the first time. Especially around the culture of the team was really good, very very warm, very friendly, very supportive. We were a highly functioning team, very productive. And then obviously some of the bad things is that we were running too hard all the time. So if you think of like a, an odometer in the car or a speedometer, we're always on the red. And it was always late nights and always weekends. And it was always... So after leaving NZ, that's one of the things that I thought of to try and fix for the next time. So I left ANZ after I got married and then I went on a six-month honeymoon. And then while I was away... I was thinking about what would be the next meaty challenge because at one point, one of them was, can I have a business myself and, and did that? And then the next meaty challenge was, can I go into a large organization and, and effect change? And in that case, I measured it by both the number of people and the type of team and culture we created and the revenue income that we generated for the bank. And then after I left, And I was traveling and I had that time off. That was the first time that I was thinking about, you know, like, how did I do with that multi-year meaty challenge? And I was like, well, I started with, yeah, pretty good. Like, I have these success points that I can point at and say, you know, that was really good. But then I thought of, if I look at that division has about 5,000 people within the the bank, that division, 5,000 people that work there. I thought, if I look at what the typical workday for one of those people looked like, before the data science team was there, when the data science team was there, and then after I left, the workday of those 5,000 people was exactly the same, literally unchanged, because all our focus was on the clients, external clients, and on the sales piece. So we were generating tens of millions of dollars for the bank through these deals, because they're large deals. But the lives of the people that worked there, we literally touched less than a percent of all the processes, less than 0.1% of the processes, even though we did a few projects internally, and but largely untouched. So I thought that the next meaty challenge that I would like to take would be somewhere where I could have a go at affecting that change, essentially like a, an internal transformation where there is a capability uplift through data science and machine learning that the working day of the people there and the company looks significantly different before during and after. And then thinking along those lines, I thought, well, for me to get that remit and to have the responsibility essentially and to have the influence for me to be able to do that. And I sort of thought, "Mm, I think it needs to be a mid-sized organization for there to be the ability to have that alignment and to be sort of like that, the data person, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then I got some Excellent piece of advice through the podcast, which is super helpful. Speaking with you, I remember, was really, really excellent in terms of even before we started recording, so much guidance that I got from you and then in the episode as well. And then the other person that really helped me when I was thinking about this, that's when you and I spoke. And the other person that helped me during that thinking is um, Tony Lang, who is um, another guest and he was... um, head of data science that I select and compare the market and now he's in Brisbane. And I remember, oh, like off the back of 
my conversation with you and my conversation with Tony is where I got to this point that I'm describing now in terms of that transformation in a business, significant capability uplift through machine learning, putting it behind every nook and cranny and every business process and for it to be a mid-sized organization and et cetera. And then uh, when I go back, that's what I was looking for. And then through some very fortunate connections and some very nice people, I uh, ended up coming into Liberty Financial as um, general manager of data science to do exactly that. So it's a company that they're hungry for that change. And they're uh, been there about six months now. We're just starting the data journey and starting at let's build our warehouse. Let's uh, get data science going. And what can we start to understand about our customers and taking it up from there? So um, yeah, that's the, the next meeting multi-year challenge. On the outside looking in, they certainly have the culture, I think, to listen to you and go on the, go on the ride with you. I think uh, I pulled you on the definitely one of those. Okay, so that's quite a rich and varied career. When you look back, so your daughter is now how old? Three and a half months. Three and a half months. So let's say in, uh, what do we call it, 17 years, eight and a half months when she's 18. Yeah. That's right, I'm not wrong. Right here and now, what would you tell her you're most proud of so far in your career? What I'm actually most proud of, it's a career achievement, but not necessarily, I think it's not something that is generally seen as something to be proud of in a career, if that makes sense, <laughs> is at least so far, what I'm most proud of is the culture that we had in the team at ANZ, that it was extremely supportive, very open, everyone was friends with each other. And even to this day, even yesterday, I was at a, at a meetup event and saw about five or six of them and big yeah. hugs as soon as, as soon as we saw each other. Yeah. And that is being able to start and create and maintain that culture. It obviously felt great to have it and being able to enjoy the relationships with the people that you work with and enjoy your the work so much. And that was really nice. And then obviously it did materialize into results as well. But for me, that was a big win because I had done, well, because it's such a nice thing to do, but also because I had done such a bad job in that dimension or in that area it, when I had my business previously, our culture wasn't very good and it wasn't very friendly and it wasn't very open. And it was something that I definitely wanted to change, but I didn't know that it could be that good. And it was really nice. Oh, yeah, it's, it's kudos to you for hitting that reset button and reflecting. It's really hard for leaders to take personal responsibility and accountability for a bad culture. Yeah, to pick up and start again and, and have that focus and get it right is a great outcome for you. Yeah, it's interesting and hearing it in the podcasts, but also as you and I try to get ourselves exposed to the great leaders, they never talk about the tech. They never talk about retail A sales levels like they talk about people and culture and connectedness. It's a message that's come kind of nice and loud through through the podcast. So it's just nice to hear it again. So you've got a, a ton of experience now. Maybe organisations out there thinking to themselves, how do I get a hold of Felipe with my organisation? But in the absence of being able to do that, what would you be telling them in order to get the most of it? out of their data science practices or even just their analytical BI practice. Yeah, I think that for a lot of businesses, it's telling them that analytics or data science, it's a team sport. I think that when people seek to test the waters or get their foot in the door in this space, they want to start by hiring a data scientist or a data engineer, a data person that will be doing the work. And that's generally quite tough. To do to be a single person i would say that's definitely not the right way to go sometimes people have 
if they've done that before, sometimes they go in and they try to hire an extremely competent and experienced, very technical person, somebody that has only the, the technical focus. A lot of business people get frustrated with that profile because they are extremely curious people and then they want to follow their curiosity and not necessarily do what the business wants them or needs them to do. And then there's that disconnect between the, the technical challenges and the business challenges. One of the things that I would say is, is look for people that can think about that dual set of challenges, the technical and the business, and is able to pull the business through. And that's one of the things that, that I'm hoping to help people think about through the podcast is bringing those stories to the audience and to their mind to think about the settling of the two sides. And then besides that, it's I think it's about the data literacy and the training. So in today's world and going forward, definitely machine learning is everywhere and, and data is everywhere. And it's, I don't know, obviously from a bias perspective, it's everything. So developing that level of understanding is going to benefit that in any organization. And I think that the more people that understand it and that can start to self-service themselves, then the better the company will be because you'll have people throughout the organization, up and down the organization, being able to make data-driven decisions. And even though a lot of people might not want to start the journey because they say, well, I can't have 10,000 data scientists. That's not the point. But having a level of kind of like a data analyst or like a business analyst where it might all be drag and drop tools and it might be no code written and it might be maybe some basic SQL, maybe not even, but they're able to extract data. They're able to do like group buys and pivot tables and visualizations and things that allow them to make that are driven decisions, then the organization will be all the better for it. And I suspect along similar sorts of lines, but let's hear it in your words, data science practitioners, how do they get, how do they maximize their impact in organizations? And particularly for new starters, just embarking on their data science career, for those individuals, what would you say? So for new starters, it's about, I think, about understanding business and understanding, or no, the, the domain of where you work. So it can be, obviously, it can be a not-for-profit, it can be a government organization or business. But at least I've noticed within myself that when I start a new job, I feel the pressure to show value quickly and to demonstrate capability. And I want to make people feel like they've made a good decision by hiring me. And so you always have that pressure uh, early in your career as well. And I've found that in my case, I've made sometimes rash decisions by following being trapped by that sentiment of wanting to show something quickly. And what I should have done instead is taking time to understand the domain, the business, the people, what they're trying to achieve, and then think about what is the best way that I can help along that journey and essentially start there. So meet them where they are. And then once you have that understanding, seek to solve their problems and their needs in a quick and easy way, which means generally not the latest algorithms, not the latest tools, but something that might be very ad hoc, but it definitely is progress and gives people what they need. If you can get away with the pivot table instead of spinning up 10 AWS nodes, then so be it. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, data futurology. So, first of all, happy birthday. Thank you. uh, Yes. Tomorrow, so we're recording today on... I can't remember what day it is. 16th, 17th of May? 16th of May, yeah. So today, tomorrow, maybe the day after, marks a one-year anniversary of the first episode going live. That's right. This will probably come out in about a month's time. Yes. So 52 interviews, 
fantastic achievement. And um, then on behalf of the data science community here in Australia, I spoke to a lot of people who have um, adopted the podcast. So thank you for taking it on. Sometimes you don't know that there's a gap until somebody comes in and plugs it. And, uh, and you've done an amazing job with the podcast. What was your inspiration? Twofold. At the beginning, I, I never thought that I would start a podcast or, or even continue to do a podcast. The seed of the idea actually came from my wife. When we were planning to go on this uh, long honeymoon last year, I was getting a bit nervous because in the last 15 years or so, the longest break that I had was two weeks, the most time off I had had. For her, it had been a very different story. By the time I met her, she had traveled full time for about two and a half years in you know, like six months here, three months there and pockets. But overall, two and a half years of full-time travel. So very different profiles. And for her, embarking on another six months or so. And actually relaxing was easy for her. Right? Correct. Yeah, yeah, she was excited by that. And meanwhile, I was saying, what am I going to do? What am-? <laughs> she said, oh, you know, we'll be together. We'll see new cultures, decide. I was like, but what am I going to do? <laughs> anyway, so obviously she was offended at that at first. But then she literally said, she said, well, you like listening to podcasts so much. Why don't you do one? You can interview people as we travel. I was like, that's actually a really good idea. <laughs> I'd never thought about that. And then in continuing to think about that, what I found is that in developing my teams in the, throughout the, my career, I saw that most of the coaching and the mentoring that, and the development needs were not on the technical side but we're on business, on leadership, on soft skills, negotiation, presentation, that strategic thinking, how to create change in an organization. That's the, what I always saw as the development needs for, in, for people in our space. And having the thought of the podcast, I, I was thinking, I was going through podcasts that I listen to, and I always enjoy listening to the technical ones. But then I was like, well, where's the leadership ones? And then I started following that line. And then what I had started to think about with my teams before starting the podcast, I have this dream that ended up sparking the podcast is um, how can we make data scientists of today the CEOs of tomorrow? And the person who is a CFO in 10 years, 20 years time that they once were a data scientist or a chief marketing officer, that was the, the thinking. And obviously, I think that that's going to be necessary and very valuable, obviously, to have these skills, but you need to have all the business skills, all the influence, the presentation, negotiation, etc., the business strategy, the value creation, those are the types of skills. So that's the vision that I started Data Futurology with. What is the gap in people interested in data to take them to a point where they could be a CEO? And obviously, it's not going to come only from one resource, but if we can help people to start to think about that, then that would be great. That's the aim. What's really pleasing for me is um, you know, podcast one through to whatever number has been posted recently. The enthusiasm in your voice as the interviewer is the same enthusiasm. So um, it's clear that the uh, it's clear that the passion is there. And again, you know, thank you so much for plugging in the gap that we didn't know we had. Future plans? You're going to have an Instagram account. You're going to have a uh, yeah, that's right. So um, the more ways that we can create this change, the better. So I think that. We have to go to video at some point soon. Have more, I think I would like more interaction with the audience where that might mean a Q&A show or something where we might take a group of people at a similar point in their career, say 
five years experience or just getting into leadership, 10, 10, 15 years experience. We take a group of people that are similar and we follow their story over a period of time through something like a workshop or like a group session where we discuss, talk about our challenges and talk about possible solutions and approaches to implement. So make it more interactive and start to tie in the lessons from the leaders that we've been hearing into how those are implemented in people's careers. And I won't ask you who, because um, it's kind of unclear to make names. In everything that you've heard in your two plus hours of, of interviewing, so what, what are the lessons or what are the stories, what, what are the things that have the biggest impact on you? I've always been impressed. I've been most impressed with the way that I want to say kind of our generation of leaders or like the, the current generation of leaders, how they've had to find their, make their way and that there has been nobody to learn from, nobody to emulate, not a single source that you can say, that's the type of leader I want to be or that's a person in this space that I, that I really respect that we had to, well, not, not so much me, but the, the, the people that, are, that I've been interviewing, that they had to create this out of nothing. and. For that, the types of skills, you have to be so savvy, so self-aware, have so much passion, be so driven, and be comfortable with meandering through your career and being able to, A, keep yourself in check, but be comfortable with diverging from the path. And that through walking around in the forest, suddenly you're on the other end. And A, I love that. But then everyone is so willing to pass on the knowledge and share that with the next generation and say, you know, almost like it was tough for me and I didn't know what I was doing, but I wanted to see if I can hopefully make it a bit easier for you. And people are so eager to help the people coming up. And I really love that about our industry. And I love hearing the, those stories of how people were self-made in their careers. They forged their own path. And they then they're so happy to share their wisdom. Oh, you're absolutely right. It's uh, not once have I reached out to somebody who I've never met before, only know by name and position title, and approach them with, "Hey, you're doing this thing. I'd really like to learn about it." And it's usually online leadership and uh, strategic thinking, etc. Nothing that technical. And they can't say yes to you. It's a wonderful title. Okay, so last couple of questions. What's got your curiosity at the moment, or um, where do you think? The possibilities lie. What do you think data science has got in front of it in terms of impact? Yeah, I'm really, really got into kind of like explainable AI at the moment. I've been very interested to learn about the developments on making black boxes a little bit less black boxy and start to understand how the models are making the decisions, what's driving it. And from a technical perspective, yes, interesting, but I think more interesting is the learnings that we can have as humans from what the machine finds yeah. and then how can that help can help us be better in our thinking, be better in our decision making, be better in our obviously feature engineering as well. And then to have this virtuous cycle where the machine learning systems by being more open, they increase their power in being our assistants. That is going to help us move forward with our knowledge and our creation of knowledge then by having systems that are more black box that obviously leads to automation but then i want to be getting the learnings and getting the insights and instead of me feeding the machine data and for the machine to do something i want the machine to give me something you know give me some knowledge yeah yes i watched a youtube video uh a little while ago now and it was a uh, self-driving car that anticipated so you're looking through the windscreen of this car as you're driving and the car had anticipated an accident 
in front of it and stopped. Wow. And to my human eye, I couldn't see what the algorithm had seen. And then out of nowhere, an accident happened. And my immediate response was, oh, that's amazing. The AI is doing this. And I looked at the comments underneath. And somebody who was kind of channeling the spirit of what you just spoke about made the comment, wouldn't it be great to know what the AI had learned so that the people who don't have the self-driving car could know that? Yes. I thought, oh, that is such an insightful observation. So your point is, it's a great point. People fear that the AI is taking over, but they are actual fact there's so much upside in terms of technology you can learn from it. What question haven't I asked that you, as you came here tonight, really wanted to answer? Great, great question. Well, have we covered it all? I just think you've done an amazing job. Yeah. yeah it's, um, I've learned from this. Uh, <laughs> I, I've learned from you, mate. It's, uh, and, and this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. No worries. Thank, thank you, you so much for taking the time and yeah, wanting to do this. It's been incredible. Yeah, thank you. So I thank you for letting me take over uh, the product for one night. Uh, and on behalf of the listeners, thank you for joining us on Data Futurology. Uh, and we should close with The Jacket is Black. The Jacket is Black. <laughs> Thanks so much, Anthony. No worries, mate. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.